Welcome to the next episode of Truth Matters. If you joined us last time, we just started on our journey of peeling back the layers of who's running the world and why, and why it matters to you today, because we want to help you decode what's going on and how it's going to affect your life and your family's lives in the future. We ended off with looking at George Bush Jr. and John Kerry, who at the time were the presidential nominees for the Democratic and Republican Party. And I think we're going to see a theme here that that when we're dealing with these societies and these high-ranking political and social figures, that oftentimes they sit on the opposite side of the aisle from each other and, and very often arguing with each other. Is there something to that? Is this a... Uh, a systematic approach to what looks like from the from the American public side a free choice uh, election. Now that was a lot of questions to hit people with right off the bat. So what we're going to do is come back and say hello to Mackenzie and Walter. Thank you guys for joining us once again to unpack these things. Hi. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Hi. So I think. Maybe people don't really understand that there is a uh, contrast between these two parties, even though when we look at the source where they came from, where they were trained, um, that they they share the same backgrounds. What what do you guys think about how this relates to to what the American public sees as normally as a free election? Well, they they say that two very strong parties that have opposing ideologies actually represent the ideal system for any country. Between the two, you can move public opinion in a particular direction. Now, there was a philosopher, and his name was Hegel, and he proposed the idea that when you have two opposing ideologies, which he called thesis and antithesis, Eventually, if you play your cards right, you will create a synthesis. And the best way to get to a synthesis system is to rub the two parties up against each other in a conflict situation. And as the conflict grows, the need for calm and peace increases. And I think if we look at the American elections in this year, we can see that conflict is at a fever pitch. Never before in the history has there been such tremendous conflict and clash of ideologies as we have in this particular uh, election, even to the point of some people talking about civil war. So then let's let's unpack that concept a little bit more before you go on. So you reference Hegel and this this Hegelian dialectic, this these two opposing opinions that, in his opinion, anyways, you would have two opposing opinions, rub them up together and get a synthesis. So can you give us a little bit more of an example of, of how that could work? Well, let's have a look at uh, the political uh, system. In the one camp, in this election, for example, you have a very capitalistic view of how to run things, and in the other camp, you have a very socialist view of how to run things even to the point of drifting it 
to almost a communist ideology opposed to a capitalist ideology. Now you have two very great extremes. And the very left uh, grouping within the Democratic Party is pushing for almost a communist agenda. So you look at movements like Black Lives Matter. They have communist ideologies at their base, as have been reported by their speakers. So if you rub those two together, then you will develop a sort of socialism which is neither capitalism nor communism, and that would be a synthesis. Now, who would benefit by bringing the world to that point of synthesis? That is the question. Which organization in the world has a socialist agenda or a social agenda which is embodied in a halfway measure between what the Republicans and what the Democrats are standing for at the moment. That would be a typical Hegelian dialectic. So who is Hegel? He was a philosopher, if you like, and uh, he was... All of, all of these people have roots in, in German philo philosophy, whether you're talking about Freud, whether you're talking about any one of those, uh, those people that, that developed the concepts of how to deal with minds. Then you eventually get to Hegel, who had this uh, philosophy of rubbing two ideologies up against each other. And then you jump right into secret societies, which have the same philosophy. Uh, if you take Freemasonry that we discussed last time, they have a, a concept which is called Ordo Ab Cao, order out of chaos. In other words, if you want to achieve a particular world order, you have to create the chaos in order to achieve that, you rub the ideologies up against each other until they become unbearable, and then you get the synthesis that you want. You can do that in the political sphere, you can do that in the economic sphere, and you can do that in the religious sphere. So it seems to be kind of a common thread or thought to have these opposing, opposing opinions to get something in the middle. Absolutely. Wait, so you're saying that there are actually there's actually a systematic approach to what we're seeing in this conflict right now, that the, the, these societies that we've been discussing are actually putting in, into movement social uh, justice and social campaigns that are, that are causing this friction. So these secret societies have, have a direct correlation to this, this friction and this um, division that we're seeing right now in the states correct and if you if you go back to our previous discussion we uh, we spoke about the knights templars and we spoke about the demolays and we spoke about how these systems are integrated into modern political systems and how uh, freemasonry can be found at virtually every level in every little town, as you mentioned last time. Now, when we go back to the roots of, of these organizations, uh, they actually go back much further 
than the Middle Ages and the Knights Templars because that same ideology can be taken back even further, as we alluded to last time, to Babylon. And Babylon can be taken back even further to, in some circles, what is considered the antediluvian world. So then you're going into, into biblical concepts and you eventually come up with uh, a conflict that existed from time immemorial. Uh, if, you, if you take a book like Morals and Dogma by Albert Pike, then you will see that they take their philosophy not only back to Nimrod, which is uh, part of the Babylonian system, they take it back literally to Enoch, son of Cain. So it is a, an ideological battle between an ideological uh, view which is embodied by a Cain uh, model and that which is modeled by the opposite side. So you have two Enochs, actually, opposing each other. Enoch, the descendant from the line of Adam, the Enoch that walked with God, and you have the Cain line, and his son was Enoch, and Freemasonry in Morals and Dogma by Albert Pike traces its lineage back to that very Enoch, son of Cain. I just wanted to let our viewers know that this book, Morals and Dogma, is actually almost the handbook of Freemasonry. Albert Pike was a master mason, and if you go online, you can find digital copies of it for free, and you'll find that this is a very revealing book, and it's something that they hand out to initiates to become familiar with the... Um, true spirit of Freemasonry and some of the history Walter talked about. But then we have these societies that we're referring to going all the way back and tracing them to stories that are in the Bible, strangely enough. So we have these weird symbolism that come from Egypt. Uh, and I think we're going to go into symbolism a little bit more in some of the, the upcoming episodes, which is extremely interesting. But then they're tracing to certain events that happened in the Bible and and other historical events. So in in what sense do we see so these secret societies, when did they first come? Well, since we're talking about America right now, when did they come to America? How can we actually trace them as do they influence things happening in the States right now? I mean, we've seen the the uh, clip from from George Bush Jr., where he said he's part of Skull and Bones. But what actual effect is that going to have on society, government? Does it have an effect? Well, I, I find it interesting, Mackenzie, that when we talk about the Freemasons, if you do a little bit of research on them, you'll find that they have had presidents that they're proud to show are Freemasons. There was a, um, a presentation done for the 300-year anniversary of the Freemasons in the UK. 
and it was filled with pomp and circumstance and all sorts of splendor. And in it, they showed their very, very proud history of famous Masons, something that I think we'll look at closer here in a little bit. But in there, they show all of the faces of the presidents. And when you count them up, you have 14 presidents all coming from one organization. And I found that very interesting in relation to your question. Because if we have a free and open society with a democratic electoral or electoral process, how could it possibly be that 14 presidents are all from one organization? It doesn't seem possible that they could all be part of the same society and not have their ideologies influenced in some way. Walter, why would all of these people be part of these societies? Why, why are all these, these high-ranking members and past presidents traced back to an organization like the Freemasons? What's the, what's the benefit? You can take it back to the founding fathers. Many of them were Masonic, and uh, the Constitution uh, had Puritans involved, but they also had Masonics involved. So it is a very cleverly worded document. But you can actually go further. If you, if you go to Salt Lake City and you go to the Mormon Temple, the Mormons are very, very instrumental in looking at genealogies. And you will find a wall there with uh, a relief of how the various presidents of the United States were related to each other. And you will find the very interesting fact there that they all come from the same bloodline. Now, if everything was so truly democratic as people claim that it is, then how is it even remotely possible, statistically, that they should come from the same bloodline, irrespective of whether they came from the Democratic Party or the Republican Party? So this, this runs a lot deeper than people actually realize. I think we need to stop and realize here for a second that the, our viewers may have never heard this information before. You just said that every president of the United States is, when tracing them back genealogically, are from the same family. Is that right? Yes. As I said, if you go to Salt Lake City and you go to the Mormon Temple, they're at the... At, in one of their halls, they have the relief against the wall of the relatedness of, of all of these presidents. And it is absolutely astounding. And you can just do a search on, on these presidents and you will find that it is absolutely so. And that even across racial lines, for example, Obama was related to the other presidents and other candidates running at the time through his mother. So yes, there is a common thread, and they all seem to belong to secret societies, which somehow trace themselves through Freemasonry and sub-organizations, like uh, chapter 322, which was the chapter of Skull and Bones, which we mentioned last time. Now, if you go back into history, then chapter 322 is a chapter of the Illuminati, now, where does the Illuminati come from? It was founded by one Adam Weishaupt and, uh, in Ingolstadt in Germany. And this organization was apparently uh, 
destroyed by the Vivarians eventually, or was it? Now, who was Adam Weishaupt? He was a, a Jesuit. And uh, now it becomes even more interesting. So it's an organization that was founded by a Jesuit. Now, they will say that it was an ex-Jesuit. But what proof does one really have that he is an ex-Jesuit, except that it is being said because he is associated with an organization like the Illuminati. And then you take a speech by George Bush Sr., where he talks about uh, a thousand points of light and illumination and all of these issues with obvious references to these societies and that a new world order is something that needs to be created. So yes, there is this common thread. And the question you have to ask yourself is, who is at the head of this organization? Who would be able to embody not only the ideologies, not only the religious aspects, but also the bloodlines? Who would be able to take it back all the way, not only to Babylon, but as Albert Pike says, all the way back to Enoch, son of Cain? And what was the ideology? The ideology of Enoch, son of Cain, was one city. One city. He was the founder of the city, all humanity being part of one system. And uh, opposed to that, you have Babylon, where there was also one ziggurat, one system, one world controlling power run by one ideology. And according to scripture, that was confounded when the languages were confused and the people were scattered abroad. Now, if you wanted the one city concept, then you have to go back to Babylon. And if you go to Scripture, there's a system which is called Babylon, and it's also called a city on a hill. And it is also referred to as a religious system, as a mother. It's also referred to as an apostate system. So again, you have the Cain and Abel concept involved in it. So basically, at the bottom of it all, there runs an ideological thread. So the rest are public manifestations, but behind the scenes there is one philosophical, ideological, call it religious, thread. So we have this, all these presidents that are connected by not only blood, but by these societies, which elevate several things that uh, we've been gathering so far. One of them is history. They know their history. They know their lineage, or else they wouldn't be able to keep that line going through. Also, they have these symbols that are relating them, which I think we're going to go into a little bit later. You'll see the connection where we show all the symbols. And uh, they have this ideology that is very similar, this one world concept. So then we have, uh, like you referred to, George Bush Sr. 
talking about this new world order, this one world system that they trace all the way back to this Enoch from Cain. Um, let's take a listen to a clip. I have a clip here of George Bush referencing these very things. A world of barbed wire and concrete block, conflict, and cold war. Now we can see a new world coming into view. A world in which there is the very real prospect of a new world order. We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations a new world order. When we are successful, and we will be, we have a real chance at this new world order, an order in which a credible United Nations can use its peacekeeping role to fulfill the promise and vision of the UN's founders. So he said a few very interesting things here. He referenced New World Order, and he said, when we accomplish this, and we will, so he was very confident that this was going to take place, and he referenced the founders. So, like you were saying before, it's not just these individuals' ideology. That's what we're trying to get at. These people aren't just thinking for themselves. They are collective. They have this ideology that they're all sharing. And it's gone through their bloodline. It's through the society. And we're trying to answer that question. What ideology is that that these founders had and have? He referenced Winston Churchill. Now, I've been in the Masonic Lodge in London, which is, has a museum section. And they have on display there the Masonic apron of Winston Churchill. And uh, so he had the same basis. And out of the Second World War arose the United Nations. First the League of Nations, then the United Nations. And the philosophy of the United Nations is not only political, it has many, many religious organizations. It even has an organization called the Temple of Understanding. And it has a prayer room in the United Nations, which is uh, like a triangle, like a ziggurat without the capstone. And it has a black altar. So there are very, very strong ideological interests in the United Nations. And the Masonic Order plays a very, very prominent role. We have to ask ourselves again, if they trace themselves back to the Knights Templars, who were the Knights Templars subject to? They were an order of the Roman Catholic Church. And they were under the direct control of the head of that church. And their goal was to achieve world recognition and world dominance through and for the system. So we're, we have this secret society that has secret whatever it may be, knowledge on something. And you're saying that it's connected to 
Roman Catholicism? Well, the, the very nature of the Knights Templars shows that they were connected to Catholicism. Now, when the Knights Templars were disbanded, their ideology was not disbanded. Their ideology was just furthered by other systems through other organizations such as the Rosicrucians. And if you go into the ideology of the Rosicrucians, then you actually get to Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is a form of religion which eventually deifies man. If you go back into into the history and you trace it all the way back again to the conflict between uh, Cain and Abel, then you have that same conflict and you take it back further than it is a, again a religious ideological war of who is in control and who governs. Is there a higher power that delegates law and justice, or is humanity alone responsible for its future? And this is where Gnosticism comes in, the deification of man. You have organizations in the world like the New Age movement today, which is very strong on the deification of man. You have statements in uh, the Catechism, of Roman Catholicism, which basically claim that Christ became man so that man can become God. So this Gnostic element, which you find amongst the Rosicrucians, you will also find very deeply entrenched in these organizations. Okay, so so let's just unpack this a little bit. So we referred to a couple of things here. Uh, you referred to Gnosticism. You also referred to the Rosicrucians, which, um, if you look in history, were very closely related to the beginnings of America as a country. Um, the Rosicrucians started in, uh, I think, their, what they call the um, Ephrata Cloister in Pennsylvania in 1786. So we see very early on in America that the Rosicrucians were already here, which are connected to Freemasonry. So they're, they're hand in hand because one of the founders of both, um, Sir Francis Bacon, was connected very closely with both of those. Uh, we could maybe go into that a little bit on another time. but And then you mentioned Gnosticism, um, which also... Uh, Albert Mackey says that the G, which is in Freemasonry symbolism, they have a compass and they have a square and then a G in the center. That G represents Gnosticism. That's what Albert Mackey says. And he's a, a Freemason author. So we have all these different concepts now coming out from these different societies. If I were a viewer or a listener right now, and this is all news to me, I've noticed a transition has happened. We've been talking about these high-ranking officials in very public places of power that are money-related, territory-related, governance-related. 
But something's happened to our conversation, which I think is a very important point for our viewers and our listeners to to uh, tune into. We've we've talked about some of these organizations: Freemasons, Knights of Malta, Knights Templar, Rosicrucians, Golden Dawn, uh, Egyptian mysticism, Theosophical societies, Gnosticism. The conversation all of a sudden has become very spiritual in nature. Is what we're seeing here the the missing element that people maybe who are looking in the world and asking what's going on is the missing element around the what connects all of these organizations together a spiritual component is that what we're is that what we're discussing here? I think that's exactly what we're discussing. In the last episode, we spoke about the the capstone of the pyramid that was disconnected. Disconnected to what? To the entire structure, which rests on a very broad base, which is a square, by the way. And the compass and square is, of course, part of the Masonic thinking. Now, who is represented by that capstone, by that all-seeing eye? Uh, if you read what is written in the Masonic writings, then they make no bones about it that the power behind the power is what they call Lucifer, the illuminated one, the light bearer. And uh, we have many symbols of, of light bearing. You have a statue in your country, which is called the Statue of Liberty, which bears a light, doesn't it? And uh, this ideology of the light bearer, the seething power, as the Masonic fraternity refers to it, of Lucifer in the hands. This is the underlying current. Now, this conflict that we were speaking about, which has gone into a very spiritual connotation now, uh, erupts periodically. And normally it is associated with great conflict. If you take the Reformation period, for example. The Reformation was a movement back to the authority of Scripture. And at that time, uh, the Medici family, which was a banking family, a royal family, and a papal family, was actually ruling in Rome. And the Medicis gathered together all the writings of Gnosticism, and of the philosophy of Greece and incorporated it in their library. And out of this Medici philosophy, which was the papal philosophy, you had the rise eventually of the Jesuit order. And the Jesuit order, in actual fact, was the embodiment of the Medici philosophy, which was Gnosticism. And if you follow this thread all the way through uh, and you want to deny that this power has any power in the world other than in a religious connotation, you have to ask yourself why all the role players, all the major role players in the political systems of the world today come from Jesuitical schools. Whether you're talking about presidents of Europe that were trained by Jesuits whether you talk about current presidents, vice presidents, 
or uh, attorney generals or uh, people on the Supreme Court. They all come out of the same stable at the moment, and they all seem to have Jesuit training or belong to secret societies associated with Roman Catholicism. Like William Barr, for example, belongs to uh, the Knights of Columbus. And uh, if you go to uh, the newest member of the Supreme Court, they belong, she belonged to secret societies within Roman Catholicism. And Mike Pence and, and Donald Trump both had Jesuit education. The, the people involved in the epidemic, like Fauci, have Jesuit in, um, education and are very deeply involved in Jesuitical th philosophy. So there is no doubt that these institutions are run by a power structure that comes from that very society with its Gnostic roots. I just want to be really clear here because it sounds like you're starting to shape a hierarchy for us here, Walter. I think that's important for people to understand. You had mentioned before that we're dealing in these structures, in these organizations, who when we really get down to it are all connected through the teaching of this spiritual wisdom that there are layers. And at the base layer, we've got some organizations, but Let's let's really get down to what I think our, our viewers and our listeners want to know. And I think it's going to need some context. But let's get can we get a can we get a clear answer? Who is at the top of these secret society pyramids? Because you've mentioned this new organization, the Jesuits, several times. Are who are they the ones that sit at the top of this pyramid? Well, who do they swear allegiance to? That's the next question. And who is higher? The one who pays the allegiance or the one who uh, dominates the allegiance? The Jesuit order was created with one view and one view alone, and that is to restore the power structure of the papal system that dominated in the Middle Ages and that was lost as a consequence of the Reformation. Now, uh, if they swear allegiance to the papal power, which claims infallibility, and if you trace its philosophy, it does not only have a religious philosophy, it has a political philosophy, and has expended vast means in order to propagate that political philosophy. If you take the religious wars in the world, if you take... Uh, the structures that have been put in place in order to achieve the social agenda as propagated by Rome, even in the latest encyclical of Pope Francis, then there is not only a religious agenda, there is a very clear political agenda, which, according to Pope Francis, has to be run through the United Nations. And George Bush said exactly the same in his World Order speech that the United Nations has to be empowered in order to do this. So then we have all these different secret societies, these subsidiaries that we know are founded from somewhere and someone, um, which 
we're tracing this back to this society called the Jesuits. Um, if people don't really know what that is, we should probably go into that a little bit and explain that because uh, in some of the secret society lodges, let's take Freemasonry, for example, in America they have the Bible sitting at the front. Now, why, if they have the Bible at the front, do they deny the Bible's version of Enoch and they have another Enoch, this Cain, this Enoch from Cain, not the one that the Bible is emphasizing. So we have that question there. And then you said that we have um, these references to Lucifer, which is light bearer, light. So we have this, this light that's coming from these societies, this knowledge, this, this something. So how does that, is that all connecting through? If you go to the 33-degree Masonic Temple in Washington, you will find on the altar not only the Bible, you will find the Quran, you will find the Sanctara Vita, you will find the Jewish writings, you will find many of these religious uh, authoritative books on the altar. So in other words, they are basically saying they all form part of a mosaic. Now, you can put the scriptures, for example, on the altar. That doesn't mean that you adhere to the tenet of the scriptures. In Kabbalism, you read not what the Word says, you read the supposed code in the Word. So what's, what's Kabbalism, in case people never heard of that word before? All right, Kabbalism is basically Gnosticism, is basically Rosicrucianism. Uh, Kabbalism goes back to the same idea that man inherently is deified. And Kabbalism is a mystic religion where you interpret the scriptures not by what they say, but by numerology. Now, numerology can be taken all the way back to, uh, to Babylon. And these people run everything by dates and by feast uh, occasions and specific events in the calendar, which become the norm. So the tradition rather than the word is the way in which you interpret the sacred writings. So by placing a, a Bible on an altar does not mean that you believe the literal words in that Bible. It means that you use it as a structure for capitalistic interpretation. So then are Freemasons and Jesuits Kabbalists? Absolutely. So we have this concept of um, this Gnostic ideology. Basically, they're wanting then glorification of their persons. Well, yes, in a sense, and no. Uh, the hierarchy is the one that is actually deified. The hierarchy is lifted above the rest of the populace. That is why 
in Roman Catholicism, as has been stated by many popes, uh, lately by Pope Benedict himself, it has been stated quite clearly that the hierarchy of the church is elevated above the populace and that deity is particularly manifested in that hierarchy, uh, which is called the magisterium, which is the, the bishops and the papal system at the top of that. Now, this kind of system you can trace back all the way to Babylon, where you had a Babylonian priest king, and he had absolute rule over the political and the religious system. And he had a title, and he had specific powers, and he was deified. And that title eventually came down the line and eventually, when the Medo-Persians conquered Babylon, these people, this political, religious priesthood, f fled to Pergamum. And from there, eventually, it was handed over to the Romans. And the Roman emperor took the title, Pontifex Maximus, and the deification that came along with the title. Now, that very title was later transferred to the papal system. And there are many writings in the Roman Catholic uh, system which refer to the papacy as another god on earth. So just as we had in the Babylonian system, eventually you had a deified emperor in the Roman system, so we have a deified god-king in the Catholic system to this very day. So let's let's kind of summarize what's really being said here for the people watching and listening, because what we've started with were political figures and, and people who rank high in society who are affecting global policy uh, that affects all of us where we live in our families. So if we are talking about Freemasons and skull and bones, and now we've identified the organization that kind of operates behind the scenes of all of them, I find it very interesting that you'll hear people talk about the Skull and Bones organizations. You'll hear people discuss the Illuminati, but you don't really hear people discussing the Jesuits. And you've tied in this concept of Jesuit training. Well, are we saying then that this organization that's at the top, that is uh, an order of the Roman Catholic Church, you're going to have some people out there saying, well, that can't be right. D isn't Kabbalism, isn't the Pope a Masonic, high-ranking Masonic Jew? Uh, isn't there some other hierarchy without the Jesuits and the Roman Catholics at the top? And and aren't these leaders paying homage to these ancient Egyptian, um, this ancient Egyptian wisdom that's taught inside of these groups? Uh, how would you answer somebody who would who would contest that the Jesuits and the Catholics, uh, mainly the papacy, not the Catholics, because there's good people in the Catholic Church, but mainly the papacy, the seat of the Pope and the Jesuits, are not really at the top? What, how would you argue that point with somebody who doesn't think that this is this is really what sits at the top? You would have to go, as we discussed in the first one, back to history. The highest ranking God king was Caesar. 
in the Roman system. And he had absolute authority. Now, that authority and that title was transferred to the papal system. And that is history. And Vigilus ascended the papal chair with the full title, the vestments, and the authority of a Caesar. And he was proclaimed the corrector of heretics, and he held sway of all government power and religious power in the whole period of the Middle Ages. That was the ruling power. The kings of Europe bowed to that power. If they went contrary to the wishes of that power, they were excommunicated. Whether they were a German king, whether they were a British king, it made no difference. That power held sway. That power lost its authority after the Reformation, and particularly with the, the final destruction of the political system. So in 1798, this power was lost, but in 1929, political power was restored to the Roman Catholic system uh, when Mussolini gave back the political territory and the political power. Now, the, the question we have to ask ourselves is which religious system in the world is also functioning as a political system. And uh, you will find that model in some Islamic countries, like in Iran. And you will find in Roman Catholicism that the papacy is both a political and a religious system. The difference between the two is that in Rome... In the Roman philosophy, the state has a very prominent role to play, separate from the church, but the overall ruler is the hierarchy of the church. Whereas in Islamic systems, the state is also the religious system. Now, which system has diplomatic relations with virtually every country on the planet? Only the Roman Catholic system. So here you have a system that not only has religious clout in the world and a religious authority in the world, especially uh, in terms of ecumenism and all the religions coming together to liaise with the power in Rome, but also the political powers liaise with Rome. It is the only system on the planet that qualifies in the spiritual and the political realm to play an overseeing Rome, uh, role. And that is what the scripture actually refers to when it talks about the system. It calls the system an overseer. An overseer. And that is what a bishop really is, is an overseer. An overseer of what? Of only the spiritual or also the political? And uh, if the shoe fits, then the organization also has to wear it. So then, uh, does not 
Catholic mean universal? Yes, that is what it so, means. It, right in its title, it says we are a universal system. Now, this is a lot to sort of absorb, especially in a short time frame, these first two podcasts about this topic. Um, so we have this criteria because the the quote-unquote global agenda or universal new world order, all these terms that you want to use, which is also on the dollar bill, like we we're mentioning, the pyramid, and we have the, the term uh, novus ordo seclorum, which means new order of the ages. So it's all-encompassing and all the things we're seeing here is this new order. And it has to be universal in all aspects, whether it's religious or political. So then why do we see all these other different organizations? There's so many different organizations. And are they then all connected in some way where are they steering to are they all back connected to rome that is where you come in with the cell structure you have different cells but each one is also autonomous but a cell by itself doesn't make an organism so this concept of different cells being eventually regulated by one superior system is how the system works. So there are many, many organizations which make up the whole, and many of these organizations do not even know that they are part of the organization. So whether you're talking about youth groups, whether you're talking about all of these sub-organizations, whether you're talking about Zionism, or any other secret society, somewhere along the line there is a connection which only those in the know know about. So you will have someone who is part of the Demolais, who is also part of the higher structure, who is also part of a still higher structure, and so eventually everything is connected. But you never really see the controlling power you cannot see the forest for the trees. The, the forest is so large, but it all consists of trees and it forms one unit. I want to let uh, our followers know that we're going to dive more into what these organizations actually teach. But I wanted to point to something, Walter, that happened in your history. If I remember correctly, you were trying to find proof connecting the high-ranking Freemasons with the hierarchy of this Jesuit and papal order. And I believe at one point you were actually pulled into a closet after one of your lectures. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about the nature of this information? Like we're, we're giving this information as if it's very common knowledge, but we're trying to just be very straightforward. When in reality, in your own life, Walter, you've had quite some interesting stories on how you've come across this information and also what did that information actually tell you about connecting these two organizations? Well, I was giving lectures on the issues and I was connecting the dots. I was following the trail. 
and the trail was leading me in one direction. And I was in my early career alluding very strongly to the fact that I believe that there was a connection with the Roman hierarchy. And after one of these lectures, uh, I had an experience where someone pulled me into a closet and told me that uh, they had information that would corroborate this very idea, but that I was not allowed to be uh, in the know as to who was giving it to me. Because obviously in these secret societies, if you spill beans, there are consequences and people want to avoid those consequences. So on, a, on another occasion, the same individual also pulled me aside without me seeing him. This was from the back and they handed me a whole lot of books uh, which connected Roman Catholicism to secret societies. And these books were in German, and I studied them, but uh, they still didn't give the ultimate picture. And then finally, I received a list once of how many of the hierarchy of the church actually had Masonic connections and Masonic registration numbers. And I was asked to destroy that list. But the list is, <laughs> was very, very long, and it listed the hierarchy with their Masonic connections. Now remember, this is at a time when the Roman Catholic Church officially distanced itself from the Masonic order uh, as something to be avoided as a Protestant fraternity. But that again is a, a double blind, a hiding behind a system which is controlled by the system through the system. It's a very complex structure. And uh, the less people know as to why they are and what they are in these hierarchies, the better for those that control it. So we don't expect to be popular for telling people this information, but we do it with our hearts filled with the genuine desire for them to know the truth. And we don't want to dance around it so much that we waste too much time to tell you who sits at the top, the Jesuit connections and the papal connections. But we're going to explore that more in understanding the teachings, because actually what we want to do is reveal to people how this plan is playing out today and what seems to be a very soon coming shakeup to our normal lives, even more so than what's happened so far in 2020, and how it relates to this agenda right now and where it's going in the future. So we'll be exploring that a little bit more. So our goal in the next couple episodes is to really reveal what this agenda is going to look like. And to that end, we received some information about future lockdowns, future public health requirements that are coming through the Canadian government and include things like isolation camps, universal basic income, and some things that I think are really going to hit to the core of people's daily lives. So it'll be important for us to not only review that, but to actually take it back to the teachings of the very people and the very structures that we've been revealing so far in this series. And I think that's a super Absolutely. important thing to mention because... Um, we have these things that are happening now, but why are they happening? And we'll get into more detail in the next episode because our time's up. But 
we have these this apparent Jesuit connection. And George Bush Sr., in one of those videos, he said that it's going to fulfill, we're fulfilling the vision of the founders. Now, what was that vision? We've kind of touched on it, and it must align, and we're going to show the connection to the vision of the founders of all these societies with the same vision that is in the Jesuit organization and going to connect to these things that are happening right now in our own countries. And that leads us to the end of this episode. Thank you, Walter McKenzie. Uh, We hope you guys got a lot of information out of this, but continue to join us as we continue to unpack all of these things and make sure you have yourself and your family and your friends prepared for what is coming certainly in our near future. Thank you, guys. See you soon. Thank you.